0: do grab a Bible. Um, There should be some on the end of each pew, and uh, pretty much the easiest bit of the Bible to find, Genesis again. We've had a few dips into Genesis over the last few months. Page five, um, if you want a page number, Genesis three, and I'm just going to read you a few verses um, as uh, we have just a few, very few minutes to dip into this together. So we begin a series together called God's Great Plan. Genesis chapter 3, beginning to read at verse 1, page 5. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, Well, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. Have you eaten from the tree from which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. And then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. We're just going to skip to the very end of that chapter, verse 21, over the page. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. And after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. One statistic from the American elections this past week has absolutely stuck with me amongst all the rather memorable events of this week. One number stood out and it's the number 100 million don't know whether you could even take a guess, but in the United States of America, there are 231 million women and men who are qualified to vote. 231 million qualified to vote. And although the figure isn't absolutely pinned down yet, there are still votes being counted, as near as anything, we know that more than 100 million of those did not vote at all. Neither of the main candidates got more than a quarter of the available votes in that election. That means that more than a hundred million adults in that particular country believed that their vote was for one reason or another worth less. It must be. Either because they looked at their particular state and said my vote makes no difference or because they looked at the two candidates and said i don't care i don't know i don't want or because simply it would never have occurred to them that they and their vote mattered now we can't just point the finger we all know that um, attendance at uh, turnout at elections worldwide has been going down but more than that, we all know what it feels like to look at the events of our world, maybe you've been doing that this week, and feel tiny in comparison. To look at a big, chaotic, seemingly out of control world and just go, I have no way of changing any of this. I have no part to play in this. I am insignificant. I am worth less. I'm going to my, put my head down and just get on with life. Try and make as little trouble as possible. Try and get through as unscathed as possible. Hope my kids, if I've got them, get through unscathed. We'll just get through this. Head down and plough on. And I want to suggest that in the face of the darkness of this world, in the face of the chaos we see around us, in the face of the evil that we remember this day of all days on Remembrance Sunday, that is just one of at least four... Lies, we tell ourselves, all four of which I think are put to shame by Genesis 1, 2 and 3. And in the end, all four of which are used to point beyond themselves to the hope we have in Jesus. And it's that hope that these few Sundays that we're going to be walking through under this title God's Great Plan point towards. Because without any apology at all, we've started Christmas early uh, in the children's groups, they're doing the Archangel Gabriel coming to Mary. Today, we're going to be looking in Genesis to point ahead to Jesus. Why? Well, not because I'm desperate to get the decorations up. I haven't eaten a mince pie yet, though. I'm sure that will come soon. I, I, was, one of the, I was one of those people who tweeted when I saw um, mince pies being sold in co-op at the beginning of August. Um, I, I, that's not what I mean. But Christmas starting early simply means thinking, turning over, chewing over the events of that first Christmas early enough that by the time we get there, we really are clear what it is we're celebrating. We know why it is a time of great joy and of celebration. We don't simply trip into it and trip out of it. And it starts right here, right back in Genesis, right back in this beautiful poetic parable of creation. And what we find as we read Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 is that these four lies that we believe about the darkness of this world are shown up for what they are, as lies. And the truth of God's promise in Jesus is pointed to, is prefigured, is, uh, is sort of shadowed so that we can begin to anticipate, so we can begin to look forward, so we can begin to believe that there is hope in this dark world. That first lie that I'm too insignificant, that I'm too small, that my life is worth less, that in the face of forces of hate and of bigotry, in the face of nations turning inwards on themselves and turning their backs on one another, in the face of war and conflict and disaster, that I have no part to play. But you only have to read the first few verses... Of the whole Bible, that first chapter, to find that actually the Bible sees you, sees me entirely differently. There's nothing in this creation account that implies that somehow we are just sitting on board for the ride, as if on some terrible nightmarish roller coaster where our only job is to hang on tight and not fall out. Actually, quite the opposite of that, Genesis is written with the belief that God has made this world and placed us on it precisely to make a difference, precisely to be significant. Genesis 1 speaks of us, male and female, being made in God's image. Speaks of us together being made to bear that likeness of God and to take responsibility for his world. He says, be fruitful and multiply multiply and subdue means bring order to it. God never gives us the let out clause of saying you're too small to make a difference. Your life is insignificant never and nowhere. Does it say that? Actually, the opposite is true. The whole point of your existence is to bear the image of God, and in doing so to represent his goodness, his love his justice, his creativity, his compassion to the world and to make a difference wherever you go. There's another whole sermon one could preach about what bearing the image of God has to do with the gift of the Holy Spirit, which we were thinking about last weekend away, last weekend on our weekend away. The gift of God's presence by his spirit is something about renewing his image in us, giving us grace and power to live lives that draw people to him and then make a difference. Don't believe the lie that your life doesn't matter. It does matter. It matters when a child in class chooses to treat another child who is different from them as being of equal worth. It does matter when we teach the generation that's coming after us to treat people with respect and dignity and grace, whoever they are, wherever they've come from, whatever they believe. It does matter. The way that... um, uh, in our communities and societies we treat those who are at the bottom of the pile it does matter that we encourage our young people to go into politics and into civic leadership to make a difference in their world it does matter that men and women still sacrifice their lives for the sake of others it does matter that we believe that our lives have significance because god made us that way But there's a second lie that's very easy to believe. And again, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and especially Genesis 3, uh, shows up for what it is. And that is the lie that says it's someone else's fault. We want to look at those who voted differently from how we would have done and say, well, it's their fault. We want to look at those who um, betray open bigotry or prejudice and we say, well, it's all their fault. We want to look at those in leadership and government and say it's all their fault. We want to look at the economic system and say it's all its fault. Actually, when we look at Genesis 3, at this diagnosis, if you like, of the human condition, it never says it's them, it says it's us. It's this wonderful interplay between God and Adam, where God comes to Adam and says, what have you done? And Adam says, it wasn't me. It was her. But actually, have you noticed, he doesn't just blame Eve, he blames God too. It's a wonderful moment. I mean, you you almost hold your breath waiting for what God's going to do because he says, it's the woman you gave me. Now, actually, we blame others, but we also blame God. It's everybody else but us. Children learn that very young, don't they? It's not my fault. They did it. They made me do it. Very, very remarkable um, writer, Russian writer, uh, Solzhenitsyn, who experienced in the early part of the last century the worst excesses of big government evil in the Soviet regime, in the communist era, wrote these staggering words that show this lie up for what it is. This is what he wrote about sin, about evil. They're worth chewing over. He said, The line separating good and evil passes not through states nor between classes nor between political parties either but it passes right through every human heart and through all human hearts. This line shifts inside us it oscillates with the years and even within hearts overwhelmed by evil One small bridgehead of good is retained, and even in the best of all hearts, there remains an unuprooted small corner of evil. The line between good and evil runs right through every human heart. Even yours. Even mine. Genesis 3 makes very clear. We can't simply point at other people or at other things or at a government or at a system. We have to say we are part of the problem. So I'm not to say I'm too insignificant to make a difference. God made me in order to make a difference. Nor can I say the evil in this world is somebody else's fault. I have to say I am part of the problem. But nor, thirdly, can we simply say, it's not that bad? It doesn't really matter. I've been very intrigued. I don't know how much you've read or been able to bear reading of the just... I was going to say eight, um, gallons of ink. We don't write in ink anymore, I suppose. I don't want the digital equivalent of gallons of ink that have been spilt over comment on the American elections in the last few days. I mean, just... I don't know how you describe it, acres of screen that have been devoted to comment and trying to unpack and trying to sort of understand. And at one end of those articles, there's been a whole set of articles simply going, it's not that bad, it'll be okay, don't fuss, don't worry, don't whinge, I think was one comment yesterday. And I guess not just to do with elections, but to do with all the stuff that goes on in our world, it's very tempting to simply go... So, you know, let's not worry too much. It's not that bad. It's happening in a different part of the world, or it's not happening to me, or it'll be better, or with the hindsight of history, it all works out in the end. But the Bible doesn't give us that choice either. The Bible, on every front, virtually on every page, stares unblinkingly into the darkness at the heart of evil and says, it does matter. It matters because sin, that little word that puts I at the centre of it, that attitude to God and to life that puts me first, destroys people and things and our world. It is thoroughly destructive. That's the picture that's painted in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve created to have this perfect relationship with God, and they hide from him. Adam and Eve created have this perfect relationship with one another and they hide from one another in their nakedness. Adam and Eve created have a perfect relationship with the world in which they've been placed and they find that actually suddenly it won't respond to their farming and to their care. Sin, evil, destroys that which God has made. And we are never allowed simply to go, doesn't really matter. Christians should always be at the forefront of saying, it does matter. It matters intensely and deeply. We should be passionate about the evil in our world because it breaks God's heart. It breaks those whom God has made. It breaks that which God has made. Perhaps there was an era in which it would have been okay to feel quite optimistic about the world that it was going to get better and better. Maybe in the the years following the Enlightenment in the 18th century, that sense of human progress, human optimism, you know, between us we can build this utopia. Well, 100 years ago, a generation of people sitting in these pews began to experience the lie to that. They experienced the war that was meant to end all wars, that within a generation had blended into another world war and endless conflicts ever since. It does matter. It's not someone else's fault. I'm not insignificant in it. But finally, there is one lie perhaps we need to name and nail more than any other, and it's simply this. The lie that says, in the face of the evil in this world, God simply doesn't care. That's the biggest lie of all, that somehow God is distant and remote and uninvolved in our world, that somehow God has no plan, no commitment to, no passion for those whom he's made. And this chapter, Genesis 3, is just a beautiful counterpoint to that. Here is the God who, in response to Adam and Eve turning their back on him, doesn't just wipe them off the face of the earth, nor simply walk away and leave them to it, but who steps in. The picture language of Genesis three is of God walking with them in the cool of the afternoon. He comes to them. He asks them a the question, Where are you? Well of course he knew where they were, but he wanted them to reveal themselves. He says, What have you done? Well, of course he knew what they had done, but he wanted them to confess their sin and to begin the process of responding to him. He then makes it very clear that he still loves them. There's this lovely verse that's very easy to miss in verse 21 where it says, the Lord God made garments for them. You know, they only need garments because they've sinned, but God doesn't go, well, and your own head be it. He acts in grace towards them. Even what we see as the curse, him banishing them from the garden, is actually an act of grace. The point being, as the writer of Genesis makes out, that if they stayed in the garden, within that sort of picture language of the parable, they would eat from the tree of life every day and never die. And this cycle of sin would therefore be the permanent state of all of creation. But no, instead, God banishes them from the garden and says, there will be an end. There will be a line to be drawn under history. And if you read the last book of the Bible rather than the first, one of the last chapters rather than one of the first, you see a picture of the world made as it will one day be when all sin and death and evil is brought to an end. And the promise? Well, the promise there in verse 15 of chapter 3 is that God will do it through one life. One life born of a woman. I will put enmity between you and the woman, God says to his enemy, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head even as you strike his heel. There is the promise of Christmas. There is the promise of one who will be born of a woman, born to crush the head of evil, even as it bites His heel on the cross. There's the promise. There's the gift. There is the conviction. There is the truth before the lie that God doesn't care. Of course he cares. He made us. He loves us. He loves our world. And in Jesus, as we begin our journey towards Christmas, as we begin to unpick this plan that God has to bring life and light into a dark world, we see that in Jesus he has done all that is needed to do one day to draw a line under history and put all things right we're going to come to communion as we do so the children are going to be rejoining us and so just let that happen Um, and uh, they'll be able to come up with us and receive a, a prayer of blessing but as we do so let's come acknowledging that this sin is not somebody else's fault but we're part of it That our lives are not insignificant, but we have a calling to make a difference in our world. And that God does care. He has done all that is needed, that one day our world will be as it's meant to be.